Hello, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this series as a way to share my academic conference presentations to a wider audience, but then I expanded the podcast in spring of 2020 to bring you the audio versions of my pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on YouTube. The conversations that I'm going to be having for the upcoming 2020-2021 school year focus not just on the ideas of teaching history during and after the pandemic like the spring series did, but also history-adjacent ideas that we can use to think about making our history teaching more responsive and broad to the world that students are engaging in today. Like in the spring, the conversations on the podcast are unedited conversations, so you might hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer, but the content fundamentally remains the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Pandemic Pedagogy for fall, winter 2020-2021. I just want to flag that because we film this at two separate times, the uh, volume is going to be a lot quieter for the interview. So if this is a comfortable volume for you, <laughs> um, you better turn it up even more because um, this is this is way louder than the sound is for the, um, the conversation. We'll work on that as we move through the series. Thanks for understanding. Hi everyone, Dr. Samantha Cotrera here for the Imagining a New We video blog, a video series designed to help history teachers and other history educators teach history in ways that are more meaningful, transformative, and inclusive for their students. So we're continuing pandemic pedagogy today, and you know, I've been thinking about, and I think I've said this before, uh, you know, I've been thinking about how, how to think about the series kind of moving into the fall and winter because so much is unknown in a different way than it was unknown in like March and April. And I thought that one of the elements of pandemic pedagogy is like to, and I mean, we, you know, a lot of people are talking about this. This is not like my original idea, but to be able to focus on the like affective, emotional lives of young people to not be so didactic with the curriculum that we don't leave space for other comments and questions about the world. And so I thought I would kind of live this pandemic pedagogy with the pandemic pedagogy part of the video series in the fall, because just a reminder, there's three series in the fall because apparently I'm just a, a glutton for weekend work. <laughs> um, Mondays are meaningful um, pandemic pedagogy midweek and then the source Saturday on the weekends with historians. And so I thought for this part of the series, one of the ways that I would kind of live my own pandemic pedagogy is to invite people to have conversations about a range of things that are like history adjacent or I think in one video I explained it like, if I'm interested in history and I'm interested in all these things, I mean, I'm sure other people will see the connections too. Hopefully you will. Um, and so one of the reasons why I thought it would be good to talk about things that are other than just like, like capital H history or history proper is because your students will have questions and you have questions and it is kind of nice to think about broader things and how they intersect with our lives as history educators, but not so like not so directly and this and this video is an example of that so when i was in high school i was a part of the like there was like a history group 
like a club, but I should have just looked it up. Um, but actually what we did was social justice work and we like did, we did um, anti uh, like violence against women marches, for example, we did um, stuff around anti-racism, like we um, stuff around the Harris government, you know, like we did a lot of social justice stuff. And I know a lot of history teachers also have work that intersects with social justice. Um, hopefully that's one of the reasons why you, are finding kind of interest in this series because I, I am interested in social justice as well. And so when the WE scandal, you know, me to WE, when the WE scandal came out in June, um, you know, like my impression was that like people were open to hearing the criticisms, maybe, but not completely understanding why, and also just not knowing where to like fit the social justice work that you want to do if me if if we isn't available and like how do we do that work without falling into that same trap right so what i did was i connected i, I saw a twitter feed written by this woman that i'm going to talk to today and i contacted her and i said like do you want to talk for the series and she said yes so i'm very very excited we are talking with june finley this is her master's um dissertation it was published in sweden because she went and did her master's in sweden and so this this focuses on We Day, but also a couple other um, international charities. And she talks about this notion of charitainment, so like charity plus entertainment. And she wrote about it on Twitter, and then she wrote an article for Flair, and now she is on this humble but important little video series to talk about like the history of charitainment and like why it's problematic, and also, you know, like how we can. Um, that was a little. That was a little interruption, a phone interruption. There's a lot of a lot of beeping today. Um, anyway, so I know that perhaps you're kind of thinking about we, but also where to place your um, like where to place the enthusiasm and uh, activism that your students and you were able to engender through we, and how to put that into um, how to think about other kind of charities and things like that it, that that maybe are a little less problematic than than we is so i'm really excited to talk with june i think it's going to be great and i hope that you're excited too uh, so let's go over to zoom so june thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me i think that like it's really great because in september a lot of teachers and students get ready for we day and your the, the Twitter thread that we connected on was so thoughtful and so was your master's thesis, which makes sense because it was award-winning master's thesis. Um, so I'm so glad you could talk today. Thank you. Yeah, it, this is this is great. I, I've been super happy to have conversation with different people um, and Twitter has proven to uh, time and again to provide super cool opportunities like this whole thing from the Twitter there, which is wild, and many people like yourself. So yeah, it's, it's super exciting to be here. Thanks for having Yeah, me. thank you. And so before we get started, um, can, you, can you introduce yourself? I mean, I did a little introduction, but can you introduce yourself yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is June. I am a social media strategist, creative strategist, copywriter, uh, you name it. I've probably done it in social, and I've been doing it for about eight years now. Um, I'm based in Toronto, but I wasn't always here for a brief amount of time. I lived in Sundsvall, Sweden, which is almost quite literally in the middle of the country. Um, and that's where I pursued 
my master's thesis in media and communication science where I wrote uh, Chairtainment. And um, that was the subject of a Twitter thread that I wrote while I was moving. So July 3rd, um, it was the same week that the- Oh, July really 3rd the, was a real chill week too. It was and it wasn't. Like the, the 25th, it, it was weird because that timeline is interesting. The 25th of June was when we charity and the government were like, so we're not doing this deal. It's done. And so that week started like a rolling, a slow burn in terms of media. And then by the end of that week, we saw that people were like, oh, so this is not happening. What happened with We Charity? Why is it, why is it being uh, withdrawn? I was like, oh, well, you know, I was kind of being cocky. And I was, I was bored and waiting for the movers to come because they were late. And of course, I go to Twitter. And so I was like, oh, We Charity is in the hot seat. Finally. So I was uh, tweeting about it and I basically said like, um, you know, about time. They've been meaning to get this for a long time because they've been sketchy. If you know, if you're in the nonprofit industry, you know that they've been sketchy for a long time for various reasons. And so it's finally time that they've been held accountable. And so I just haphazardly said, does anyone want to, you know, does anyone want to talk about does anyone want to read my my thesis because i wrote about this eight years ago and they're like what and i was haphazardly writing it and a lot of people were like yeah i'd love to hear it and i was like i went away for about eight hours because again i was moving and then by the time i was very tired that evening my phone was buzzing and it had a crazy notification i was like what what happened did i spell something wrong like what happened and i was like oh my god people actually want to hear this <laughs> i was like this went viral this is crazy um so the next day, I was like, I went viral. Now I can say that to different people if they ask me to do stuff. I'm like, I made myself go viral. Although, anyway, um, so the like next day. Use, I don't know if you want to like say viral during the pandemic. Like maybe, maybe we should find a set of Yeah, things. true. Maybe wrong choice of words, right? Words, <laughs> words mean things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the next day, I, I ruffled through my boxes and found my book. And I was like, well, if I'm going to tweet this out, but in less than maybe 15 tweets, I need to be able to make this succinct and be able to basically tell people why they should be interested in what's happening because they've been sketchy for a long time. I didn't, and at this point, nobody knew the details of what's, what's come up in, in the finance committee hearings and what's come up in the many media reports since. But at that point, everyone knew it was like something is wrong because the government doesn't just cut and run like this. So, and a big organization like we also does not cut and run like this. And so I was like, this is why they're problematic because, uh, you know, they've used various ways of what we call charitainment to, you know, it's been the, Weed has been the cornerstone of their empire at this point, but is it really doing anything properly? And so between anecdotes from friends of mine who've worked with them, who've been on the volunteerism trips to We Villages, and even just my own research, I was like, yeah, they might, they're very good at raising a profile, you know, very good at marketing, very good at making their supposed messages known to people. But at the end of the day, is what they're doing actually effective? And there's a lot of evidence pointing to no. And that, that, was, that was even before, you know, they had their reckoning about their toxic work culture, their racist work culture, their, um, you know, their finances, what holdings they had. This was before all of that came out. And so I was just like, this is why you need to watch them because in general, charities just need to do better at this, but we is proven to be an example. And so since then, there's been a huge conversation and Flair Magazine actually saw the thread and approached me to write 
about what I knew. Um, and so that was actually a lovely process because that was my first national byline. And um, it was a great, yeah, that, thank you very much. It was, it was actually lovely writing it. I had a great time writing it and I'm trying to do that again. So, um, and then, yeah, as a result, I've been able to talk to a lot of people. I've been a couple of panels, some podcasts, but I'm just happy to be able to have added to a conversation that's needed to have been had for a very long time. Yeah, and especially, you know, the, the scandal intersected with so much of the Black Lives Matter protests to be able to highlight elements of their, of their work culture that are racist, but then like this notion of charity as this like, you know, kind of white savior comes in too. And it, I think that people were a lot more open to it, especially like white teachers, for example, a lot more open to hearing it, to like see, to, to see things or hear things that they didn't realize. So let's take a step back. Like what is charitainment? <laughs> Yeah, so charitainment is actually uh, a term that was coined in 2005 um, by TV writer, by excellent TV writer James Ponowczyk. He's a he's he writes for um, TV culture for the New York Times, um, but at the time he was at Time Magazine. So he wrote about the phenomenon of people like Angelina Jolie, um, who were you know UNHCR, which is the University you know, the United Nations. High Commission for Refugees, uh, what they call Goodwill Ambassadors, but there was a, a t that at that point in time, uh, between Bono, Jeffrey Sachs, there were a lot of you know celebrities in various the economic and entertainment worlds who were becoming really famous, not just for who they were as what they did for their jobs, but what they did outside of them. And so um, that whole aspect of charitainment is uniting of charity entertainment, literally, because in that article, when you read it, it's a great description. He set the scene is set at an event for UNHCR where Angelina Jolie is there, but there's also a lot of celebrities, paparazzi, and some people are asking about what the event is for, but other people are just asking, hey, you know, how are your, I, I can't remember at that point if she had adopted her children yet, but um, people are asking about, you know, what's your next trip? How's your movie this? What's happening with your love life? Whatever else. And so it was just, in the, uh, it was a point in time where the entertainment industry and charity work were coming together in very, in a very publicized way. But it's also had an offset in terms of the academic world, because at, I realized when I was doing my research before I wrote my thesis, at that point, that is when a lot of academics were interested in it too. And so a lot of, I was only one of many that quoted that article as part of their literature reviews. That, that article sparked a lot of discussion in the academic world about, um, about the era of charitainment, which has grown to even bigger proportion now. Remember, this is before like Twitter was even a thing. So, right. you know, and social media was really where it was as it is today. So... The idea of charitainment then and now is fundamentally the same, but it is so much bigger than it was, uh, gosh, 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, but it also is not, it's not like a new thing either, right? Like there have been celebrities for decades, right? Like, I don't know, I don't know if saying like since kind of popular media, like that might be some hyperbole, but like you know, in the 20th century. I mean, certainly. TV is popular media. So you can count, like, even from the 
50s onwards, that's popular media, right? Yeah, so being like um, 19th century newspapers as popular media. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Obviously. Yes. Right. Yes. So, so newspapers are of TV in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So mm -hmm. but it, you have, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Maybe like talk a little bit about that and about like how like that intersection of of charity and celebrity in ways that can be kind of like a little problematic. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I always try to explain it in two ways. So you have, on one hand, you have uh, Audrey Hepburn and Angelina Jolie. Audrey Hepburn was one of the first, and honestly, probably one of the more famous Goodwill Ambassadors for the United Nations, and she worked for UNICEF at the time. Um, the first one actually was Danny Kay way back in, I think it was, I believe it was 1956 and 1957. After him, it was Audrey Hepburn. And she really raised the profile of, you know, charities like the United Nations. And she spawned a lot of different um, charitable efforts and celebrity, including one in Canada, which was referenced in the Thai. There was, they interviewed me a couple weeks ago and the author listed one there. I can't remember his name, but maybe you can list it later. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I remember her name is Lata. I think Hermanoska, I think that was her name. But anyway, so you have Audrey Hepburn, who, yes, was a celebrity, but she used her celebrity to authentically bring awareness to where she was going at the time because, I mean, travel then was just becoming a thing. And so like, oh my gosh, she's going to this faraway country with these interesting people and trying to help them out. And, you know, literally we couldn't go anywhere. And so people were like, I want to be able to give my money to help this person, this organization do what they're doing. And so it was a bit simpler. And that's just like, you see this lady who's helping these kids, whatever. Else. And even then the framing could be problematic, but that's beside the point for now. You have, and then on the other hand, in modern times, you have Angelina Jolie, who, while I do believe she was, you know, and still is genuine in her efforts to help. I mean, she adopted like four children from different countries, which again, could be friends, problematic, depending on who you ask. But I believe that she was genuine in her, her efforts to want to help people. And she did bring a lot of effort, um, a lot of, lot of effort from various governments and whatever else. She's basically, an, she was an ambassador of sorts, more so than the Google ambassador is required to do because of who she was at the time. And at the time, she was very different from what, I guess, a woman would be framed as. She was not traditional. She was very controversial. She had the blood thing around her neck from Billy Bob Thornton. Like it was, you know, she had very unconventional thing, but it's what yeah, it added her to brother. her star quality. Yeah, her brother. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so she had those unusual qualities about her, but it was a draw, a big draw. And so at that point, Goodwill Ambassadors had, they had their work to do as, for the United Nations, but it also benefited their own lives as entertainers and added to their own brand. And so in that way, that's where charitainment can get a little problematic is that you, you can be genuine. I don't know people, I don't know their hearts, but the way that's portrayed, you really want to be sure that you are coming off as authentically, as authentic as possible because the way that people perceive you and perceive the cause that you're associated with can change based on how you act, right? And so, you know, those, those women were very, you know, they were very ahead of their time in that way, but it's interesting on how they were portrayed and how they used that star power to either promote the brand they were working with or promote that brand, but also use to promote their own. So that's so, what I usually use those two as a comparison. Yeah. And that's an interesting, it's an interesting comparison because 
there seems like there are a lot of similarities. And then when you take a look at their the actions and also like the media around them, you can see the different ways, you can see the kind of, the, the, the different ways that this work got picked up, but also how they performed it in some ways and like whether mm -hmm. it is a performance or not. So I guess yeah. that, like, and I'm glad that you said the word authenticity because it was one of the words that you like specifically just defined in here. I guess mm -hmm. like, I mean, I feel like we're kind of dancing around this, not intentionally, but because we already kind of know the like end of the story, but like, why right. is the problem? Like thousands of kids have packed the Sky Dome because it's always going to be the Sky Dome. Um, thousands yes, of kids have packed the Sky Dome, all like committed to like making change in the world. Like, why is this a problem? So the idea of the media event, authenticity, media spectacles, celebrity involvement, all of that inherently isn't bad. Mm -hmm. What is concerning about these media events, like, like telethons, like We Day, whatever else, is that it's very reductive to a very complex conversation. So international relations, I have a degree in it, and there are still aspects even up to now where I haven't been in it for years, but you know, I've worked in it and whatever else, but it's hard for me as an adult to understand. You try explaining something like, you know, uh, the Sudan, uh, the Sudan Civil War that had happened uh, at some of the times I looked at the We Days, you, what, where Mia Farrow spoke. Like, we're just reducing the fact that, you know, there are very, not even various facts that there is a civil war happening because this government might not be acting as people's interests because there's been... There's a, a battle between Christian populations and Muslim populations. There's so many complex things that end up in a war. And so while you want to be able to have that discussion outside the media event, because I do believe that you, media event should start a discussion, right? But to start a discussion, you need to be able to have the tools to be able to discern what is happening here, how can I help, who are the players here? And all of that is who determines what's good and bad. And so it gets reduced to a binary in that like, this is good, this is bad. Um, there's a couple of lines in Mia Farrow's speech that I had looked at that she basically said, she had shown pictures and she's like, these are children like you. And she's showing children's drawings of, of war. She's showing injured children, which I was like, wow, really? Um, you know, I was just like, this is like poverty porn, a first thing. Um, but without providing a context to say, you know, this kid is living in this state because of these things. All of these events, like we day, unfortunately just reduce the conversation to say, this is good, this is bad, we should help, and this is how we should help. And because you can help, you can change the world. And so the, the conversation is really, is reduced. And unfortunately, that's why it's unfortunately not a great thing the way that we has been framing it is a lot of media framing that unfortunately reduces a lot of, and others people you, the people that are having the conversation are on the the western hemisphere are mostly white um and are not and who have honestly probably never have traveled to the southern hemisphere or places on the eastern hemisphere and so all they know other than what they might be learning in the classroom and that's depending on what grade they're in, too, because some of these kids are as young as 12 years old. They're not learning that stuff yet. And so all of it gets reduced to this one thing that one actor is framing to say, this is bad and this is what you, what you can do about it. 
they often like they have this they have programs in schools um, which again has been you know problematic over the last couple of years if you ask any a lot of teachers where they obviously don't have a say in the matter um, so they pair to get to we day you have to do a lot of what's called service-based learning and again service-based learning is actually a can be a great model if it's done right um, but to get your to earn your way to we day you can't buy a ticket you have to earn your way by going through this curriculum and doing these acts of service or whatever else to get to we day and so yes it's it's a good thing to have you know it's kids they need to be entertained and whoever else and you have some of these speeches which are honestly if you're a kid you're not paying attention to a lot of them but my concern is the framing of it all and that's what's concerning to you know to the whole conversation is that if this is who is framing it and who is benefiting from all of this it's certainly not the people who they're claiming to help as it has been revealed in various media reports over the last month and a half and I mean, I feel like this is a leading question, but like, do you think that the spectacle of it all allows people to not ask those questions about what the results are, like, and who is benefiting? Yeah, absolutely. Because it, like I said, it's, re it's reductive. And so um, you have all these things, you have these things, and in including in a wee day now, because I have never been to a wee day personally because I don't have children and I don't, I'm not a teacher but I have friends who have children who have been teachers who have gone to we days and in addition to learning about this situation in the world they also have corporations coming in to talk about various things so you're being you're having all these messages thrown at you so even then you don't even know which one to pick to really pay attention to because you have all these things coming at you but then you have this famous person um, or maybe not famous to you because I don't know about you, but I don't, a 12 year old would not know who Mia Farrow is. Their parents might, or maybe <laughs> even their grandparents, yeah. but a 12 year old is not going to know who Mia Farrow is, as famous as she is and for what all she's done. She's not famous to kids. That's why I was like, why is she here? But anyway, <laughs> um, the, the point is to answer your question. All of that framing, yeah, it's, it, it, it unfortunately just, it doesn't allow you to, it doesn't ha give you the tools to really discern, you know, let me read more about this. This is a, yes, it's a terrible situation. Let me learn how. Is there a certain thing for kids to learn about? Because all, otherwise, all you would get, and this is before the internet was a huge, huge, like Wikipedia and all that was a huge thing. All you'd have is the news, maybe your parents who talk about it. But other than that, it's completely foreign to you. And all the information that you have is coming from this organization who benefits from your time and, and money. And so, yeah, it could be led, it is kind of a, it is unfortunate in that sense where it's the only source of information for a lot of people who attend these events. You know, I appreciate how you <laughs> reduced the reductive message <laughs> aimed to be like, you know, to something really clear that's like, this is bad, we're in a good spot, and so therefore to make change, like, these are just the steps we're going to do because that, I mean, it's, it, it's easy and it's seductive for people and like, that's not, that's not a criticism, but it, it like, I mean, it, it sure, certainly can be, but I, I'm, that's not like mm. the point of that statement, but like yeah. it makes sense because like, okay, well, I want to do something and I don't know what to do. And so like, what are the yeah. attributes of an organization that you think that people should like keep an eye on when they are, they are thinking of engaging in this work, especially with youth, because like the colorful media spectacle, easy messaging 
is, it works in schools because of all of those things, but it doesn't actually mm -hmm. work. So like, what are some attributes people should be like kind of looking at or looking for? Um, I think they should be looking at a few things. So if you're, say, a kid, and honestly, kids are so much smarter these days, and so I don't put it past them to actually go looking for things now. Like, people, and I said this in another uh, article, but people have a really high bullshit meter. So in terms of, like, the imagery and all of that, some kids might be like, hey, you know, why is this particular thing being shown to me when, you know, I'm hearing this or whatever else? But here are a few things that people could be looking for. So one is especially in the imagery, always, I mean, always ask questions in general. Um, but in when you're being shown something, think about who took the picture. Do we know anyone, do we know anything about the subject other than what the organization is telling us? Do we know what work, like the, con you have to zoom out and look at the big picture of things. If you're seeing a photo on Instagram and they say, this is Solwe from Ethiopia and she's doing this thing. Okay, cool. I want to know what this organization is doing in Ethiopia in the first place. Are they doing sustainable development? Are they doing polio things? Are they doing whatever else? I want to be able to be able to start thinking about it and find it on your website because Instagram is one thing, but the website's another. Um, but again, this is where social media is fascinating and complicated at the same time because a lot of people, especially in younger ages, do not visit the website anymore. And so the onus is on the organization to really provide as much information as possible where they can because of where the audiences are. And so if you're on social media, you want to be able to maybe link out to a couple other things to say, this is how we got to this point. If you're an adult, you want to be able to follow the money. Following the money should be the most boring thing ever. Um, having written a few annual reports myself at organizations or have contributed to them, uh, I should be able to find out how long you've been in operation, what your, essentially your budget is, um, what exactly it is that you do, who benefits from it, who you employ and where you employ them, how your organization generally works and the projects that you do. Where is the impact? And also how did you measure that impact? And that's a trickier one because I think that's where we charity kind of shone a light on a lot of other organizations in that there are things like Imagine Canada and all that that are watchdogs in this regard. And there are other smaller um, firms like the one headed up by Kate Bain and Mark Bloomberg. They, ha they had each head up different organizations from a law and a financial perspective on where charities stand and it's great work that they've been doing. But in general, in the general public, it's Imagine Canada's the watchdog. But unfortunately, even they've been under scrutiny the last month and a half, which is bad. So I want to be able to look at any report and follow the money and follow the projects and all of that stuff. And I, I really learned this when I was at UNICEF Canada because being responsible for a lot of the imagery that came out on social, I really had to think about how am I looking at this as a consumer and is this poverty porn? Is this a, a means to an end to figure out, you know, hey, this thing isn't so great, but it, 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 it plucks my heartstrings, but it also turns on my brain to figure out what can I do about this? Where can I learn more about this? And how can I help about it? And so that's the power of good photography and imagery for a lot of things. And that's no matter who you are, young, old, whatever, it does not matter. Um, but yeah, you should be able to find out, you, at the end of the day, you should be able to find out more about the organization you want to help. And it should not be hard to do so. 
So it's interesting because one of the things they do is I supervise undergraduate students independent research projects, so like their thesis project. And I had a student um, propose a project in like March, April about like looking at how charities represent themselves online, on websites, on social media. And, um, and so when he collected his data this summer, I was like, oh, it's going to look different right now. And he said, you know, I was kind of expecting all the websites to be the same. And I would like to name him and give him credit for this work, but I didn't get his permission. So I, I'm just like saying these are not my ideas. And if I do get permission, his name yeah. is Hello. Um, but okay. he was like, I was expecting it to be very similar, and it wasn't. And he, like, obviously, he looked at we because it's like the biggest, most high profile. And then he looked at another mm -hmm. one, and he's like, it wasn't flashy. It was just like, we're working really hard. Like this is where you can send us like money basically, but we're like yeah. we're too hard to have all of these graphics. And he's like, but then the we website is just like, you know, and the social media presence is so crazy. And he's like, it was so interesting to realize like how you could get sucked into the imagery of it all without realizing like did they actually say like what they're doing? <laughs> like, are they actually communicating? Like we're actually too busy to make this a big spectacle for you. You know, it was, it was a really mm -hmm. interesting thing. And it's, it's interesting how you're saying like, you know, the young people are going on the website. Young people are engaging in like in social media, it, you know, with these different media and like, and how easy it is to be sucked in by the, by the spectacle at all. But I think you're right. The young people are really smart and they're aware of certain things and they might not have language for it, which is which is why like as educators, we can kind of help bring that up and demonstrate there's this like longer legacy. Like this is why you feel kind of icky about it. Absolutely. Like I remember like my, so this is close, my 9-11 moment was actually probably one of the best teachable moments I've ever experienced in a classroom. My global studies teacher in OAC. Yes, I was grade three. I was the last cohort. Um, so at 9-11, we watched. He wheeled the TV into the room. Remember the TV on the, on the, oh, <laughs> they wheeled sure. the TV the room? Right? He wheeled the TV into the room. It had CNN live. Our school actually could afford live. I, back then I was like, we, afford, we can afford live TV. But then again, our parents' association raised a lot of money for it. So we were able to have a lot of things that a lot of other schools couldn't. So we watched it, the second plane, go in live. And we were all like, what the hell just happened? But for the rest of the class, he forgot the rest of the class. And he was like, this is, this is scary, right? And I was like, I don't even know what just happened. Like, I saw a, a plane fly into a building. And I found in New York City and who one of my cousins worked close. She works in downtown Manhattan. So I was like, I'm just freaking out because I'm like, my cousin, what is happening to my cousin? But he helped to calm all our fears by just saying, like, this is likely the result of decades of conflict between the United States and various actors in the Middle East. And remember, this is a global studies class. So this is exactly in his realm to talk about this because we had been learning about all that stuff, about the annexation of Palestine, whatever else. And so it ironically it did fit into what we were learning anyway, but he freestyled it, but he explained it so well that I was like, I don't, and even watching, and my, my family is, is very news-minded, like m many members of my family have been in media, but in general, we were taught to read newspapers from young. So even just going home, we had another discussion, but at school, I did not expect that. And that's the kind of thing I want to be able to 
that's the kind of learning environment I want to be in, right? Like I was very lucky to have, Mr. Bray was the same, amazing teacher. I'm a And it inspired me to go into, right? And he inspired me to go into international studies. That After that discussion, it inspired me to switch my major from business to international relations because I, I desperately want to know more. It sparked me wanting to learn more. And so that's essentially what a lot of, you know, especially ones, especially charities that act internationally, they should be able to present you with something that sparks your interest to be able to learn, be hungry and learn more about something. That's why I don't think media spectacles are, are inherently bad. I think they can serve as that thing. But if you're being very myopic in your view about who helps what and all of that, and this is before you get to all of the profit organization versus nonprofit where your money kind of goes into the profit arm and then doesn't go into the profit, like it's nonprofit. Before all of that, like, I just want to know what exactly are you doing, who's paying for it, where's the money going, and then where can I see the results of all of this, and what impact did you have? Is the problem solved? Like, the UN, again, for the second time, just eradicated polio, right? But we want to be able to see those things and how they did that and all that. But that information is, well, I was going to say readily available. It's not exactly easy to find, even as a former UN employee. <laughs> so they make that hard, unfortunately. But it's, it's findable. That's the point. You know, so I want to reflect on my 9-11 moment as a way to, like, build on that because you sparked some, like, kind of interesting elements there for me. So I was in first year university um, okay. uh, that year, and, uh, you know, whatever we saw in our, our um, common room, and then I went to an American history class, and the teacher didn't have enough about it, you know. Um, and I was at a, I am not going to name the school, but I was at like kind of a smallish university and, you know, you don't know what to do with yourself in these times or like a situation like, uh, like with global poverty, that's bad, right? Like you understand it is bad. You want to do something. You don't know what to do about it. And yeah. I transferred to U of T for my second and the rest you know, second, third, and fourth year, because there was scholarship coming out of U of T from the, um, uh, like, the Women's Studies Department, the Institute for Women and Gender Studies, that brought in an intersectional analysis that I was like, yes, this is making sense of why I'm, like, angry at what is happening, but also confused and feel like we're talking about it in ways that is not mm -hmm. really getting at it. And so to like link back to what you were saying about like how it can be so reductionist, like others and ourselves bad and good, that like maybe an attribute of a social justice organization you want to be part of, a charity organization, is whether or not there's elements of that intersectional analysis, that larger historical analysis of international relations, for example, that doesn't just just doesn't just like pair things as like them bad us good therefore us help right like yeah. that kind of nuance that intersection can kind of bring some of that up yeah 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 the challenge and, too is like you need to be able to do that for a young audience and this is where i'm like and i've said this to many other people I'm like this is where we excel they are masters at brand marketing. They're masters at getting, the, I don't know who, I want to talk to their producers that book their shows because I don't know how they got, they managed to get the right people at the right time every year for Wee Day. They got exactly who they needed. People who, I think I had talked about, you know, the first, the 
first two wee days, Romeo Dallaire was there, and that's when he was having his moment about having come back from Rwanda and talking about the horrors he saw there and talking about the, the genocide that happened, but also at the same time that his book and then the movie Shake Hands with the Devil came out. But I was like, oh, so your parents might know about it, which means you might know about it. Like, just, just the people they managed to get at certain times. I was like, wow, that's really, as a marketer, I'm like, kudos to that. I can, I don't necessarily agree with what it led to, but I'm also just like, I recognize that they're masters at branding and getting their message out in that sense. But then exactly what does that message result in? What is, what other than kids giving their time and money back to the organization who may or may not be helping the people they claim to help? Well, and like, this is the second time you said like, oh, your parents might know, but the kids might not know because- yeah. You know, and I remember when I heard of Wee Days, and I'm just like, oh, that's kind of a star-filled lineup. But yeah, like, does a 12-year-old know those people? Maybe not. And so that's kind of interesting, like, how there might be this implicit parent buy-in that's part of it. And, yes. like, I don't know, one of the things I'm kind of thinking is, like, also just to ask the kids themselves, like, how are you feeling about this? How does this make sense in the different mm -hmm. social media channels that you're working in because so many of the young people are working in these social justice channels that like we were talking about TikTok before we started filming that we might not be aware of, you know? Being Absolutely. Old. And I mentioned <laughs> that in my Yeah, right? Yeah, being, being from an OAC generation. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Like and I mentioned at the end of my flare article that, you know, we don't necessarily need the rigidness of organizations to make change anymore. Most of what's been happening this year has happened because of social media. But even before all of that, like Arab Spring, uh, Me Too, Black Lives Matter from six years ago, those were those, all of those started on Twitter. They didn't start, then they turned into bona fide organizations, but the movement started on Twitter and then they turned into things. So, and even, and even then, the majority of how, how these various movements, and even the ones on the far right too, they all mobilize and, and organize through social media, through hashtags, whether it's on Instagram or Twitter. And so that's why I'm just like, charities are there and the legacy ones are not gonna go away anytime soon because especially like with the UN, their mandate is so huge and so complex that they'll never be able to solve every single problem. But with various other organizations, it's like, maybe we can get the ball moving faster because, you know, people are willing to work right now, the time or whatever else. But especially during this pandemic, it's been, people just have the time, they're fed up and they're bored, but also just like, we just have the, we have, we're not as busy. And I think that's why a lot of the stuff has sparked up, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement over George Floyd's because we've been tired, but it's like now, now you are listening because you are sitting at home. You're not buying everything every two, well, now we're buying everything every two seconds, but <laughs> back then we are just like, because <laughs> I know I am. Uh, so now we're sitting at home, we're not busy with being at an office nine to five, we're not busy with, and this is, of course, and there's always exceptions to the rule, it's not for everyone, but we're not as distracted. And so now people are starting to be like, hey, listen to this thing, hey, 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 remember that from six years ago? Still happening, we need to, we need to do that now. And so now people are listening. And so I think this is also where charities really just need to adapt with the times too, because a lot of them have been fairly rigid in terms of, when I say rigid, it's just like either, and it's not always an unwillingness to change. Sometimes, again, the organization is so big that they can't, but charities just need to be more receptive to what is actually happening in the street. 
And I think that's, that was my major takeaway after working at organizations for so long. It's why I essentially left. And I would never rule it out to come back. I would and if the right offer or something came along because I still want to be able to help people. But you need to be able to pay people a living wage. You need to be able to adapt to, hey, not everyone's on Facebook anymore. Maybe go to Instagram or maybe adapt to wherever else. Like the YMCA has done really, and I, I used to work with the YMCA, and the YMCA has done really well in terms of pivoting to live video for their workouts. They've done an ex exceptional job at that because they know that many people are not willing to go to the fitness center anymore, but they know that people still need to be fit because it's a social determinant of health, which they're very, they're very adamant on. And so they're like, cool, let's have this community where you can join Facebook Live, you can still get your workout, but you're in the comfort of your own home. And yet it's, and they're helping, actually helping people. But at the end of the day, it's a good branding move too, because they're like, hey, I remember the why was ever, and I can't wait to get back in the gym and renew my membership when they open again, right? So it, it's not always altruistic, but it certainly helps. Even if it's just like, just adapt to the time, and honestly it could benefit you in the end. But so many charities are very unwilling to change uh, just because it's the way they've always done it, right? Which is a very, uh, very scary phrase. A very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it far too many times. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I am aware of the time. I want to wrap up, but I also just want to highlight that. Um, so I talked to Dr. Kristen Davis um, in June um, around the time of the Black Lives Matter protest. No, it was like that week. It was a, it was a very stressful week. And she was saying like one of the, one of the things about Black Lives Matter is that it really highlights to young people, for example, that like you can make change on a grassroots level. And so often when we're learning history, we learn about, and she was American, like the great, the great men usually, the great people like Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. And we might not be able to think that we can make change, that we have to be one of these great people to do so. And not mm -hmm. only does that reduce the stories of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks in particular, like super mm -hmm. problematic. If you don't uh, know that to the watchers, look it up. Um, yeah. <laughs> that like, if like a charity with that type of spectacle, like we was really kind of about this like cult of an individual of these, of these like charity people, like the, the, the brothers, they are these people, Mia Farrow, there's these people, like it isn't the same kind of grassroots that we're seeing from social media, um, uh, social media protests and activism and things like that. And I think that's kind of an interesting, maybe like element too, for people to be aware of, like, is this the cult of individuals despite the me to we part? Or is it, is it something that comes from the ground up in a way that feels more authentic, kind of going back to your first answer, right? Yeah, and that, that what you described there in terms of the cult of individualism and all that, in the book, uh, we call it ironic solidarity. It's one of my oh, favorite academic great. terms. Sorry, I didn't, like, notice that. I should have brought that. No, that's okay. I mean, listen, it's, it's dense. It's a lot of stuff. Like, it took me six months to write it, but it was a lot of late nights, so it's okay. Like, it took me a while to figure it out. But it's why ironic solidarity is one of my favorite uh, academic terms because like you have the the we aspect like the you know people are like hey we need to do this but essentially you're really acting because you have been affected by this thing and you feel emotionally influenced whatever else because this celebrity this organization has told you as such 
So you're not necessarily, you might be responding to, you know, and you might, and I'm not saying like, you know, we're all essentially selfish, that's human nature, but some people might actually be like, in a, in this, despite that, they might be like, hey, I actually do want to help these people because it makes me feel good. And there's nothing wrong with that. The point is with we though, we, I use our wrong solidarity because it inherently is a selfish motive in that the charity is really only more motivating, at least as it, as it acted with We Days, it's only acting its best interest to A, promote its work, which again, inherently isn't bad, but because that work is not measured properly in terms of the impact, we don't know that. Um, because of who they work with, various corporations are allowed into these things. And then afterwards, you know, what exactly is the impact with the one? What happens when the kid goes home to their parents? Do they just be like, hey, I went to this cool thing today and that's it. I felt good for that moment, but that's about it. So, like, it's ironic because, yes, you so collectively decide, oh, we are going to do this thing, but individually you're like, I want to do this, but not necessarily because I know I'm going to help these people over there because um, Justin Trudeau said it was cool and I want to do it because I think he's cool. And that's it. So, and again, that's, and that's a reductive thing. I actually encourage you to look at, there's lots of literature on charitainment, um, mainly from Lily Shuli Oraki. She's who I base a lot of my work on for this thesis. And she's, she's on Twitter as well. She doesn't tweet as often, but her body of work on media spectacles and all that is amazing. And I absolutely recommend that you look more into that if you want to learn more about charitainment, media events, uh, post-humanitarianism, uh, ironic solidarity, all of those things. She wrote about those in Europe before anyone else. And so that's what I based my work on because bef before I did it, no one had done it for North American context. So that's why I was like, sure, it's amazing. Go look at it. Um, that's so great. And all like the, the links will be below the video so people can do some like follow through if they want to. Um, June, this has been so great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate, I really, you know, I, I appreciate you tweeting it out but also being able to like have a conversation about it in relationship to like history teachers for example that might be doing this work i think i think that you've like brought a lot of really important ideas to the fore and i'm really kind of excited to see what people kind of think about it in relationship to their own work so thank you so much this has been great thank you so much this is honestly what i wanted when i wrote my thesis all i had really wanted what was for it to be in the realm of public discussion it took eight years for it to happen but it happened so <laughs> this is yeah. all i really want for my thesis other than the degree that i got because of it but I just, this is stuff that needs to be talked about and has needed to be talked about for a long time so like i said before i'm really just happy to be able to add to the giant body of work that's now uh, been created in the media because of this so yeah. it's, i'm happy to be here thank you yeah, no, thank you. And um, like I said, all the links will be below. And let's uh, let's stay in touch. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the Pandemic Pedagogy series of the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. My first book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We, will be available in the latter half of 2020. Order on Amazon or through your local bookseller today.